front of you. You will find it on, let's see, page 974, page 974. And as you're turning there, I'll ask you a question. What do Ringo Starr, Arthur Conan Doyle, Judy Dench, Elton John, Bob Hope, and Bill Gates all have in common? Oh, close. They are all knights. They are all knights. Uh, or at least honorary knights. Now, it seems strange uh, that the United Kingdom still uses that title of knight, doesn't it? You know, when I, when I think of knights, uh, I don't think of Crocodile Rock or um, I don't think of Clippy from Windows 95. No, when I think of knights, now I think of medieval times. You know, horses, round tables, uh, large, cumbersome armor, castles, moats, and people eating mutton. It used to be that knights were proven warriors, and upon achieving the status of knight, they pledged loyalty and at the same time were given certain rights that not everyone had. Rights like owning property, rights like carrying a sword uh, at all times, rights like wearing armor. Armor was expensive and it couldn't afford it for everybody. That's what I think of when I think of knights, but knights are still around. And you won't see them wearing shining armor. You probably won't see them on horseback, and most of them don't have newfound property rights. No, not all knights are soldiers anymore. But all knights are still awarded this status. And they're still awarded through a dubbing ceremony that looks medieval in practice. You're probably familiar with it. You know, the knight is on one knee before a royal figure. In, in this case today, it's usually the queen, who takes a sword, the flat edge of a sword, and, and taps on the right uh, shoulder of the knight, and then the left shoulder, and poof, presto, knight. And once dubbed, the knights get to add sir or dame in front of their name. Or if they're not British citizens, they get to add initials after their name. So while knighthood has changed a lot over the centuries, it remains a status that is achieved. And even today, it is ultimately the sovereign of the United Kingdom who decides if a person has done enough to earn the status of being a knight. Well, today we're picking up the Apostle Paul's letter to the Galatians, and we're picking it up in the fourth chapter. Now, by this point in the letter, it's clear that these Christians were tempted to think of their status before God as something akin to knighthood. That is, a status that is achieved. Sure, Christ died for sins, but to be in his family, you have to first do things that his family does. Kind of like knights. Before a knight can become a knight, they have to do knightly things. But the Apostle Paul responds to this, and he's adamant that our new status in God's family, it doesn't work that way. It's not a status that is achieved. It's a status that is received. The achievement is done, and we receive it by faith in the one who has done it. 
So let's read our text for this morning. Galatians chapter 4, verses 1 to 7. I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. One of the things that we found useful when preaching through the Bible and when dealing with one particular passage from the Bible during a sermon is to distill that passage into a main point, idea, or takeaway. And so the goal being is that the main point of the passage would be the main point of the sermon. That way, we are directed by God's word, by God's word on its own terms. That is faithful to God's word in its context, not lifting it out of its context. That is faithful to what the author of that uh, word is intending and how it fits within the entire Bible. So, the main point or takeaway for Galatians 4 verses 1 to 7 is this. If you are in Christ, rest. Because you do not have to achieve or assure yourself of your new status in God's family. God has done it, and we rest in him. Now, before we jump into developing this, we'll see how this has worked out, you know, how God has achieved and assures us of our new status. We'll walk through this text. We'll walk through it in two different stages, you know, our stages before Christ, that is a stage as in bondage or slaves, and our stage after Christ, that is as sons. But before developing that, before jumping in the pool, got to make sure we have our floaties on and goggles and sunscreen, and we need to answer Marvin Gaye's question, what's going on? What's been going on in Galatians so far? It's been over a year since we've picked up this book. Uh, last summer, we went through the first three chapters of Galatians, and so we need to remind ourselves of some background information so that we can understand chapter 4, verses 1 to 7, even better. So some background info. Who wrote the book of Galatians? I've said his name a couple times. His name is Paul. As the Apostle Paul. Uh, and if you want to know more about Paul, uh, you can read the book of Acts or even read the book of Galatians. In fact, friends, I would commend you to read the, this book of Galatians in one sitting. Uh, tomorrow's Labor Day, maybe you have some free time. It'll take you no longer than a half hour, and I promise you will not regret doing it. Um, so, Paul gives some autobiographical information about himself. That is, formerly, he was, for all intents and purposes, a terrorist to the new Christian church who God saved from that and became the most prolific church planter in church history. That is how great God's grace is. So the Apostle Paul is writing this book. And more precisely, this book is not a book, but it's a letter. It's a letter written to Christians in the region of southern Galatia. And today you find that in modern-day Turkey. 
uh, that country that's kind of in between Europe and Asia. So when you compare this letter to the book of Acts, you can find when Paul probably wrote this book. Um, in the book of Acts, chapter 15, there's something described called the Jerusalem Council. This is a big church-wide meeting, big wigs of the church meeting together, discussing the nature of the gospel. In Galatians 2, Paul talks about a similar meeting. And now the, the theory is, or you know, the scholars would say that this, now these meetings are similar, but there are some differences between the two. So if Paul was writing after the Jerusalem Council, this very, very important meeting, it's likely that he would have mentioned it in Galatians because it related to the same issue. But he doesn't mention it. So it's likely that the meeting he describes in Galatians 2 happened before the Jerusalem Council. All this means that Galatians was most likely written in the late 40s. That's not the 1940s. That's the 0040s, first century. So this means that Galatians is the earliest full-length letter we have from the Apostle Paul and one of the first books of the New Testament. So, background info, who wrote it, what kind of book is it, who did he write it to, and when did he write it? What kind of letter is this? What's in this book? What's the purpose? The letter's not a Dear Abby letter, not a Dear John letter. When we read Galatians, and again, I would commend it to you, um, we find that Paul is addressing a distressing situation. So among the Galatian Christians were those who Paul labeled agitators. That is, people who claimed that entrance into and continuation as a full status member of God's family meant believing in Jesus and following outward ceremonial aspects of the Mosaic law. Think of Leviticus. You know, and the thing that they emphasized the most was circumcision for males. So in order to fully enter the community of God, you had to believe in Jesus and look like his family and do outward things. Well, Paul emphasizes that this is not the case because this is communicating that Gentile, that is non-Jewish Christians, weren't really a part of God's family until they did these outward things. And the Galatians were believing this message. They were believing these agitators. And in response, Paul stresses that entrance into God's family and justification, that is what it takes for God to declare a person righteous, that these things are by faith alone, in Christ alone, not faith and outward works. No, it is only Christ who has satisfied the law and taken the law's curse that we deserved and taken that curse on himself. That's the synopsis of Galatians. So if you're opening your Bible to there, we can just kind of walk through the chapters so far, maybe give you the cliff note versions. Uh, so if you're used to English class and not reading the book, you go to Cliff Notes. So I'll give you the Cliff Notes version of the Galatians. So chapter 1, 
uh, in light of the agitators' attack on Paul's apostleship and their attack on the gospel that Paul preaches, Paul begins with a defensive posture. He says, no, that this gospel, my position of leadership, it wasn't established by people. No, it, this came from God. It came from God himself. And he tells his own story of that, of how he was formerly a persecutor of the church, and Christ himself saved him from it, and Christ himself told him the gospel. So in chapter 2, Paul defends the gospel that he preaches even more, the gospel of faith alone in Christ alone, that it is not from people, that it is from, ultimately, God. And he defends this by uh, noting that other apostles agreed with what he was preaching, that they were preaching the same message he was preaching. He recounts a visit he made to Jerusalem when all the apostles agreed that circumcision, that is, outward adherence to the law, is not required for belonging to the people of God. This leads Paul to recount a story of the apostle Peter, who said he believed this justification by faith alone, but his behavior communicated otherwise. So Peter was at a uh, church potluck in Antioch, okay? And so church potluck, everybody's eating together, and there naturally there are cliques, just like at school. So all the, the Gentile Christians are eating together, and all the Jewish Christians are eating together. And Peter is only eating with the Jewish Christians. And so by doing that, Paul tells him, Peter, you're communicating to the Gentile Christians that there are added requirements besides faith in Christ. Your actions are contrary to the gospel. He got in Peter's face. And that occasion leads Paul into a broader defense that justification does not come through those added requirements. It comes by faith alone. And he argues for it again in chapter 3. Different arguments for justification by faith alone. He appeals to the Galatians' experience. They experienced changed hearts from the Holy Spirit, not when they started keeping the law. They experienced changed hearts from the Holy Spirit when they had faith in Christ. What's more, Paul appeals to the pattern of Scripture. You see, the agitators would appeal to Abraham, saying, Abraham sets the pattern for being justified by righteous deeds. Paul says, no, in fact, it's quite the opposite. Abraham sets the pattern of being justified by faith, not in what he does, but by faith in God's provision. And the law came after Abraham. And so the intention of the law was not for us to use it to earn a status before God through our obedience. It was meant to show our bankruptcy, that we can't do that, and that God must provide a substitute in our place. So throughout chapter 3, and especially the closing part of chapter 3, Paul highlights the good news that Christ has met the demands of the law in our place. And he has taken on himself the curse from the law that we deserved because we broke it. So, therefore, 
It's in Christ we receive the status of sons of Abraham and heirs according to promise. And so here we arrive finally at the beginning of chapter 4. And Paul this time comes at his argument from another angle. To say again that full, forgiven, justified family status is already theirs in Christ. Because that status is received. It's not something that they achieve. So he begins by describing their previous state during the time of the law of Moses. So we can summarize Paul's Paul's description of their previous state before Christ with one word. Enslavement. Enslavement. And he explains this by using an analogy, and then he uses that analogy and applies it to their situation. Okay, so look at verses 1 to 2. To describe the previous state of enslavement, he uses an analogy. Paul tells the Galatians to think of a child who has a large inheritance waiting for him, but can't access it yet. In our day, maybe this is childhood movie stars. You know, the the ones that I knew were Macaulay Culkin and Jonathan Taylor Thomas. Stars par excellence. A childhood star may sign a lucrative contract with a production company, but his or her parents are still in charge and can prevent them from getting access to that money. So the inheritance, Paul says, The inheritance and riches belong to this child in title, but not yet in actual possession. And until that child actually possesses that inheritance, Paul says that that child is no better off than a slave. How so? Well, it's because the child's not in charge of himself. He has other people telling him what to do until his father decides when to give him his inheritance. So the Galatians would have been familiar with this situation. And you look at historical practices of inheritances, and Paul takes some liberties so that he can apply this situation, this analogy, to their situation. Now, we've talked about the analogy. Now, how does this relate to the Galatians? What was their situation exactly? What was their previous state? How does this analogy You know, a child without inheritance, being controlled by guardians and managers. How does that analogy relate to them? We'll look at verse 3. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. So we're going to break this down a little bit. Get a tighter grip on what's going on. So who is the subject? What is this subject enslaved to, and what does that bondage or enslavement entail? What does it look like? So who is the we in verse 3? This is all Christians generally, all Christians in their previous state. And notice the scope that Paul has in mind, how, how big of a picture, how broad of a brush he paints with. What are they enslaved to? It's the principles of the world to which we were enslaved. And what are those exactly? Elementary principles of the world. What are those? That's a great question. Context shows us simply that these must be principles that the Galatians were previously following. 
So for both Jewish and Gentile Christians, they previously followed something that enslaved them. Some kind of system that they could use to earn a status. So for the Jewish Christians, they could formally use the Mosaic law to earn a status before God. You know, for the Gentile Christians, formerly they could use some kind of pagan religious system to earn a status before God. So all Christians in their previous state were enslaved to some kind of system like this. And what does that enslavement look like? What does that bondage look like? Think back to the analogy. Think back to the analogy. When an heir is still a child, he doesn't have full access, he doesn't have that full status of an heir because something is preventing him from getting it. It says managers and guardians. So we can picture a a, a small child and a big hulking man and the child trying to run run past him and the guy just going like this. Can't do it. Preventing. So bondage then looks like inability. Inability to free yourself. Inability to gain a status on your own. So when you rely on a system to earn good status with God, it won't work. It won't work. Look back at Galatians 3, verse 10. It says, For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. You know what this is saying? That unless you satisfy the demands of the law system completely, it's going to curse you. It's going to bind you in chains. So bondage looks like inability to earn yourself that status. Looks like inability to free yourself. And we can lean in a little bit further on what bondage looks like and say that bondage looks like more than inability. It looks like more than not being able to free yourself, but it also looks like being convinced that you can free yourself and that you don't see that you are in bondage and in chains. You can't see that we are enslaved. And I think, friends, this makes sense of the world around us. That people don't really see that they are indeed in bondage to some kind of system where they are earning status. People don't see that. Just ask yourself, I mean, what the first thing we say about those we know who are not Christians, what the first thing we say about them be that they are enslaved to sin and in bondage to a system where they have to earn their status. Would that be the first thing we say about them? Probably not. Well, we can nuance that a little bit. It's because, you know, all people are made in God's image, and God has common grace in his world so that people are not as sinful as they could be, 
and people do have a relative moral good, but that good is not enough to satisfy the demands of a holy God. So we can nuance that a little bit. But the reality is still there. That all people on their own, in bondage, in chains, unable to free themselves, unable to earn a good status before God. And because we're prideful, that's a tough thing to affirm. It's a tough thing to affirm, especially when we are outside of these walls. So when we're all together, we all believe the same thing. This is Sunday morning. This is church. We're looking at the Bible. This is an easy thing to notice and an easy thing to believe. It's another thing to uphold this when we scatter from this place. Bondage. And all that talk about being enslaved to some kind of system where you earn a status, all that talk about bondage is ironic. Because you go out of these, exit these doors today, and the prevailing notion that you'll hear is that the highest virtue is personal freedom. So let's say you are getting coffee with a friend. Your friend's name is Chet. And you sit down with Chet. And you sit over cafe lattes, uh, venti at Starbucks. And uh, you ask Chet, you know, Chet, uh, we talk about just nonsense stuff all the time. Uh, would you mind if I asked you something that's a little bit deeper? And Chet said, sure, go ahead, shoot. I was like, Chet, how should people live? How should people act in the world? What should be people's purpose? What should people do? Well, Chet resp- replies, oh, yeah, that's a great question. You know, I think... I think people should be free to do whatever they want to do as long as they aren't hurting anybody. I think that on the surface that makes sense. You know, but what if we take that and we peel back its layers a little bit? I think we're going to find some things don't smell that good if we peel back its layers. So you follow this to the core, you peel back a layer, and you see that, well, if people are free to do whatever they want to do, what happens when what they want to do contradicts itself? Then what? People may want to be a bodybuilder, for example, but they also want to eat stuffed crust pizza every night. One of those things is going to win out, but they should be free what they want to do. Well, you could keep pulling back the layers here. As long as you don't hurt anybody, you can do whatever you want. Well, who defines what hurting people means? Who defines what hurt or harm is? There's got to be an absolute truth somewhere. Uh-oh. Ah, but I think if you follow this to its core, you peel back all the way. Free to do whatever they want to do. That creates people who are selfish. I'm selfish. And so Chet is kind of taken aback. It's like, okay, I can see your point. Maybe, though, People realize that. Maybe I'll realize that. And so I will use my freedom to give myself to something else. Maybe it's work, family, community. Wow, it's a chat. Well, won't those things let you down? Won't those things control you and enslave you and disappoint you? Our chat says, well, well, then I just won't give myself to anything. I'll, I'll, just, I'll just be on my own. Well, no, Chet. 
you are actually giving yourself to your own independence. That's what you are committed to. The point is, friends, everyone is in bondage to something because we all live for something. You can't not live for anything. Everyone has something that they give themselves to, and that is what controls them. Author David Foster Wallace puts it like this. There is no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And an outstanding reason for choosing some sort of God or spiritual thing to worship is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough. If you worship your own body and beauty and sexual allure, you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally take you out. If you worship power, you will end up feeling weak and afraid, and you will need even more power over others to keep the fear at bay. If you worship your intellect, being seen as smart, you will end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the fringe of being found out. So there's a lot of talk about freedom. Do whatever you want to do. And people may feel free, but the chains are there because everyone gives themselves to something. And anything besides God will eat you alive and it will let you down. We were made for something bigger, someone bigger. And as Augustine said, our hearts are restless until they find rest in God. So that's our previous state, bondage. It looks like inability. It looks like discontentment. It looks like despair. It looks like thinking that we're free, but actually we aren't free. So now what? Who is it that would break the chains we put ourselves in? Who is it that we can give ourselves to that would actually bring freedom and life that wouldn't eat us alive? Who is it that would take the curse we deserved on himself. Well, there's one little word. There's one little word that can change the whole mood of a paragraph. There's one little word that can offer hope when everything else seems hopeless. How does the beginning of verse 4 go? But. But. Oh, our previous state is bad. But hope is on the horizon. And we're going to see what God has done to break the bondage that the law has on us, to bring us into his family, and to assure us that he has indeed done it. So against the dark backdrop of verses 1 to 3, well, verses 4 to 7, shine brightly. So we want to bask in its glory, walk through all of its parts of this hope of the good news that it's emerged. But something good's coming. When does this good happen? 
Notice when this good news has happened. It happened when, verse 4, the fullness of time had come. The fullness of time had come. What does this mean? And it means that hope emerged not a millisecond too early and not a millisecond too late. So I want to pause here. And in light of this, what's seen as perfect timing, ask ourselves, do we think God knows what he's doing? Do you think God forgets? Do you think God is too slow? Do you think God gets caught by surprise? That phrase, verse 4, when the fullness of time had come, if we answered yes to those questions, that phrase would tell us to think otherwise. Who knows but God why this was the fullness of time for hope to emerge. But you know, we can get some historical clues. Think of the early first century, the time when Christ was born, when the Greeks had provided a common language so that the gospel could be spread, that the Romans had built roads and protected it with guards so that the uh, apostles could travel the roads safely and establish more churches. We think of the disillusionment that the pagan religion offered, that people were fed up with Greco-Roman gods. And we think of people struggling, being ready to set free from the law. The fullness of time had come when this hope emerged. But when the fullness of time had come, what comes next? Who comes next? God. So we have this, but we have this glimmer of a good news, glimmer of hope. And who initiates it? Who initiates the good news? Notice, friends, it's not when the fullness of time had come, people. No, it's when the fullness of time had come, God. So whenever the Bible speaks of our sin, whenever it speaks of the predicament that we make for ourselves because of our sin, bringing just judgment from God, the initiative of rescue, the initiative of hope is always presented not as coming from us, but as coming from God. Think of Romans 5. While we were sinners, God. Ephesians 2. We were dead in our trespasses and sins, but God. This is what sets Christianity apart from every other religious system in the world. Every other religion or religious system somehow involves us working our way up to a status or to God. Christianity says, no, we do not work our way up. God came down to us. He's the initiator. And how did he do it? Well, notice the next phrase. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son. What was God's attitude in doing this? Ah, I guess I'll do it. Remember that verse, and you're going to see it next Sunday, uh, behind the goalposts of the Browns game. John 3.16. What was God's attitude in sending his son? God so loved the world 
that he gave his only begotten son. And this is impressive, not because the world is such a big place. No, when the Apostle John talks about the world, he's talking about the system that's set up in rebellion against God. The impressive thing is that God so loved the people that hated him and sent his son to them. This is the only thing that can humble us and lift us up at the same time. There's no pride in the face of God's love. There's no way we could earn it because we deserve the exact opposite. But there's no way this should not make us feel utterly loved. God sent forth his son. And how did he send forth his son? Continue verse 4. He was born of a woman, born under the law. So if the Son of God became human, then that must mean there was a time he was not human. So this speaks of the Son's eternal existence alongside the Father. That is that the Son is fully God. And the phrases, born of a woman, born under the law, speak to the fact that the Son became fully human and is fully righteous in accordance to the law. So we consider the concept of God coming down to us, that concept of grace, how it sets Christianity apart from every other religion. Consider also, friends, how Jesus is set apart from anyone, that he is the only one who is fully God, fully human, and fully righteous. The only qualified person, Savior, to do this work. John Stott writes this, If Jesus had not been a man, he could not have redeemed men. If he had not been a righteous man, he could not have redeemed unrighteous men. And if he had not been God's son, he could not have redeemed men for God or made them sons of God. Oh, Jesus is qualified. So why did God send his son, born of a woman, born under the law? Why? We'll keep reading. Verse 5, to redeem those under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. Redemption. And in this context, redemption refers to how someone would pay for the freedom of a slave. Redemption. And what was that payment? How did Christ pay for that redemption? Look back at chapter 3, verse 13 of Galatians. It says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. How? By becoming a curse for us. It's the price of his own life. It's the price of God's wrath for our sin put on him. And he paid it all. The once for all sacrifice. That's what the book of Hebrews says. For our redemption. So friends, this means Jesus is our substitute. That on the cross, God treated him like we deserved. But think of the other side of that. Now, God treats us like Jesus deserves. Us. That's the adoption. That's the stunning news of adoption. That means 
God treating us like Jesus deserves, that means we have the same rights as Christ. That means we have the same inheritance as him. That means we are going to be glorified like him. That means we are part of the same family as him. I will get to it in a second. You see that word Abba? If you're familiar with the Bible, where do we see that word? Who uses that word? Jesus used that word. So we get to call God the Father the same thing that Jesus does. God sent forth his Son, the fullness of time, fully divine, fully human, fully righteous, to live and die in our place, to pay for our redemption, to bring us into God's family. And you know, God doesn't even leave us here. Friends, just wait, there's more. How does God assure us of this? Friends, it's not just that we have this new status. We have new life and new experience. God sends the spirit of his son who makes us cry, Abba, Father. So friends, see the Trinity in our work of adoption and redemption and forgiveness. The Father sending, the Son accomplishing, the Spirit applying and assuring. So when all this happens, when this new experience comes, God's no longer a distant God. No, there's the confidence that a little child has who knows his Papa loves him. Martin Lloyd-Jones says that Now there is this real knowledge. Now there is confidence. A little child has confidence. A little child does not analyze it. He knows that Abba is his father. Grown-ups may be standing back at a distance being very formal. But the little child comes running in, rushes right in, and holds on to his father's legs. He has a right that no one else has. It's instinctive. We cry. Abba, Father. So the Apostle Paul concludes the paragraph with a summary statement in verse 7. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. How does your new status come about? It's not through our merit. No, it's through God. That last two words of verse 7. An heir through, not ourselves, an heir through God. It's because of God's initiative. It's because he sent his son to die for us, then his spirit to live in us. So friends, in closing, why is this so important for us to know? Why was it so important for the Galatians to know? Because sons can still act like slaves. Sons can still act like slaves. But it's no longer that we live a good life, now therefore God accepts us. No, now it's God accepts me unconditionally in Christ, therefore I live for him. See, the switch of the motivation of a son who is assured of the father's love for him. That's the attitude of a child who knows his father's love is secure. Who knows, our status does not depend on our performance, but on Christ's performance. 
So take heart, Christian. When God looks at you, he sees a son. And God delights in his children. God will never leave us or forsake us. Why? Because we're perfect? Because God has no standards? No. Because Jesus has fulfilled God's standard for us. He has absorbed our punishment, and now God is our Father. And as we read in Romans 8, verse 1, there is no more condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. So Christian, where is your rest? Where is your rest? It's not in you. It's in the Lord. I'll leave you with the words of Martin Luther. It says, Let us not fail to thank God for delivering us from the doctrine of doubt. The gospel commands us to look away from our own good works and rather to the promises of God in Christ, the mediator. We depend on God for our salvation. No wonder that our doctrine is certified because it does not rest in our own strength. It does not rest in our own conscience, our own feelings, our own person, our own works. It's built on a better foundation. It's built on the truth and the promises of God. Let's pray. Oh Lord, how firm a foundation you have laid for us in the promises of your word that Christ is the one mediator between God and man. Though, though God, we look at ourselves and we see that we are unable to free ourselves, that we are unable to earn our status with you. But God, you have done it. But God, hope has emerged because you have acted in grace on our behalf through your son. So now God, would you help us to experience the privileges of our adoption, of our new status, so that we would live like sons, like those who are receiving an inheritance, like those who have confidence in their father's love. Do this for us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.